Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Last week, we left Jane praying after having heard Rochester's voice calling for her. Chapter 36 starts the next morning. Jane is set to leave to try to find Rochester. Jane waits for Sinjin to leave Morehouse before she will even leave her room. He's finally leaving to go visit those friends in Cambridge, but he leaves her a note saying he will pray for her and that she will see the light and marry him or risk going to hell. She all but dismisses the note and then leaves later that same day, heading for Thornfield. It takes 36 hours to get to Thornfield, and that's not including dropping off her trunk at the Rochester Arms, the local inn, and walking up to the house. When she finally arrives at her old home, looking to find Rochester, the house is gone. It is a burnt ruin, pretending no life and nothing but horror. Jane panics about what could possibly have happened. She goes back to the inn to ask about it. The innkeeper tells Jane the whole story, including the role she herself played in it. He says that, quote, When gentlemen of Rochester's age fall in love with girls, it is often as if they were bewitched. Jane responds, you'll tell me that part of the story another time, and demands to know what happened to the house and to its inhabitants. It turns out that Rochester had a mad wife locked in the attic, he says. That mad wife went down to Jane's room and lit Jane's bed on fire. Luckily, it was empty. The whole house then caught on fire. No furniture could be saved. Mr. Rochester got everyone out safely, even every servant. But when he went to get Bertha, who had climbed onto the roof of the house, she jumped to her death. She died smashed on the stone. Mr. Rochester got caught under a beam and lost an eye and a hand, but was brought out alive. Jane asks where Rochester is now. He is at Ferndean, a house he has in the woods. Jane says that she will pay double the usual rate if the innkeeper can arrange for her to get to Ferndean before nightfall. 
What is conspicuously not said in this chapter is that because Bertha is now dead, Rochester's free to marry whomever he likes. The pesky Creole madwoman is out of the way now, and literally not one person remarks upon the impact of her death. In chapter 37, Jane arrives at Ferndean. She reintroduces herself to John and Mary, the two servants Rochester has kept in his new life. Rochester is waiting for a glass of water and some candles from Mary, but Jane tells Mary that she will bring the tray into Rochester and goes and sees her master for the first time in over a year. He is blind and confused as to who is in the room with him. Jane only reveals herself to him slowly. Here is Roxanne Eberly on Rochester's blindness and its implications on Jane's and Rochester's power dynamic. So what a lot of critics have always argued about is that these very powerful male figures, and they're usually powerful both economically, physically, rhetorically, they have to be taken down in effect. And you can almost, especially in Jane Eyre, um, he is injured in a way that allows Jane to have more agency. And so he must be injured. He must be wounded. This is a, an aspect of feminist critical readings of 18th and 19th century texts. We see this a lot in Gothic novels as well. So it's also Bronte drawing upon a Gothic tradition. But you have the wounding of the male figure, which deprives him of that excessive agency men had in the 18th and the 19th century. So it's a necessary wounding that gives Jane power. And then, of course, Jane seizes that power in the crafting of her own narrative. So her narrative kind of tops his. She gets to tell the story the way she wants to. She gets to keep her secrets. Jane immediately starts flexing her power over Rochester in ways that frankly make me feel uncomfortable. He is a blind man, and when he asks who it is in the room, she responds, Pilot knows me. After a prolonged painful moment of Rochester's euphoria interlacing with panic, Jane and he are overjoyed in each other's company. Rochester's vulnerability is heartbreakingly earnest. He's worried she isn't real. He's dreamt of her before. But eventually, Jane convinces him that she is real by talking about, quote, practicalities. Jane moves in, and the two of them spend time together, engaged in utterly satisfying conversation. Jane tells Rochester about Sinjin, who was handsome, had good manners, and was brilliant. Also, Sinjin wanted to marry her. And she tells all this to Rochester in an effort to make him feel something other than depressed. Jane says that she is enjoying vexing him, making him jealous, because it is pulling him from his dark mood. It seemingly works, but I find it difficult to read. Jane tells us how good it is to be back with the person she loves best. She describes the feeling of being totally comfortable, of being seen, of truly seeing someone else. Rochester proposes. Jane says yes. He tries to talk her out of it. You'll have to take care of me. Be my eyes. Lead me. She takes his watch from him and still says yes. Then Rochester tells Jane how deeply contrite he is for what he tried to do how repentant he is. And then he tells her that a few nights ago, he yelled, Jane, 
Jane, Jane. And he heard her answer, I am coming. Jane does not tell him that she heard him too and answered. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Lauren Sandler. And this is On Air from Hot and Bothered. Here we are. <laughs> Jane! Jane, Jane, Jane. <laughs> My favorite part of this chapter is when he's like, we have to get married in three days. I need you. It's also like, you're in the woods. Who would know? My God, after all the things you've done, Eddie, just get it on. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Lauren, teach me. <laughs> Uh, Well, I just keep thinking about how last week we were talking about the doctrine of wifely submission and sort of the the model that Sinjin was proposing. And here, you know, we have the total reversal of this, right? You know, we're now in this situation where Jane is Rochester's guide. She is the one to be leading her husband. And that's a formidable reversal. It means that, you know, it's a form of marriage in which the wife's resources, not the husband's, create the union. She's not dependent upon him. He's dependent upon her. But, you know, what it takes to get there, I think, is something that we really need to unpack a little bit. I will say as background, scholarly work from the 1940s and 50s would often read it in a very sort of Freudian way. The idea being that his disability was a form of castration and it was necessary because his sexuality needed to be tamed before, you know, our Victorian heroine could possibly take what he had to offer. (laughs) You know, and going back to Gilbert and Gubar, who we've talked about so many times now in The Mad Woman of the Attic, they actually thought that Bronte did want to castrate Rochester, but it wasn't so much about a fear of his sexuality, but more about rage against English patriarchy. Either way, I think that we do need to talk a bit about disability, about his physical circumstances and what Bronte makes of them. I think it's really worth noting that we find him in this state that could be entirely desexualizing, but there is a real erotics to their communication. I mean, there's clearly so much desire here. The rapport is there. The chemistry is there. Their way of reaching for each other. It's so it's so intense. And it does feel like his physical circumstances have only intensified this in so many ways. But that said, there are other critics who believe that Bronte just uses his disability as a plot device and a shallow one at that to be this perfect switcheroo that we need in order to elevate Jane's position. And that in doing so, it's really stamping down on anyone who has any disability themselves. Furthermore, Bronte's depiction is one that seems to really lean hard on really problematic tropes of disability, right? It's talking about incompetence. It's talking about some sort of tragic heroism. It's, you know, the word pity comes up over and over and over. You know, Rochester after the fire is childlike and needs total care. He's someone who's in depression and isolation. He is described animalistically. 
he exiles himself after he's disabled. And so it relies on a portrayal of disability that is such a, a stereotype and one that is so told not from inside the perspective of what it means to be blind or to lose a hand, but really just what it means to have power over someone who is in that situation. It also talks about disability as punishment, right? It's like on a karmic God level, this happened to him because he attempted to be a bigamist. And that's the way that Rochester sums up these chapters, right? He's like, I'm really sorry for everything I did. And not only am I sorry, but God punished me for it, referring to his becoming blind and losing his hand. So it's it's very much injury as punishment, which I find really problematic. Yeah. And I don't disagree with that. And reading some of these critical studies, one of the tropes that a number of people raise is that he he ended up in this situation when he tried to do something heroic, when he tried to save Bertha. And there's a critique that disability without heroism is somehow completely unacceptable in society. And therefore, his disability needs to come with a side of heroism, that that's the thing that really makes it tragic, was that he was so courageous in trying to do such good. And therefore, isn't this terrible? I don't know. I I will say it's not how Rochester tells the story. Rochester does not tell the story as if he was the hero. I mean, he doesn't formally tell the story of his injury, but he tells the story of his punishment for his wrongdoing. He sees this as God putting him back in his place. I guess I just buy that logic from within the book more because that is the logic of the book again and again. Jane gets rewarded for her good deeds and for her loving heart. And Aunt Reed, even though she, quote unquote, did the right thing by apologizing in the in the end, still dies miserably. And so Jane continuously gets her just desserts. And so Rochester has to be punished in this cosmic way. Rochester seeing this as divine retribution is just as problematic to me and is more rooted in the Calvinist logic of the text to me. And I see something also problematic and Calvinist and ableist in this as well, which is it seems to me that Rochester's injuries are a form of punishing Jane for her desire. Right after Rochester proposes to her and she says yes, he says, well, that's because you delight in sacrifice. And she challenges this. And then she says, I love you better now when I can really be useful to you than I did in your state of proud independence. And on the one hand, yes, we can see the importance of having the playing field leveled between them. On the other hand, the notion that these things are a plus, I struggle with. I do not believe that she loves him less for this. I do not believe that she desires him less for this. Bronte does an extraordinary job of making us feel that desire. But I also feel like this is also the need to put Jane in service to this man and to make her life of service to him. I do wish that having economic equality between them had been enough for Bronte to feel like the playing field was leveled. Yeah. 
the house being destroyed and him going from this really wealthy man to fairly impoverished, right? Like Dianu, right? It's enough. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's enough. Like, and now she has the money and he can't buy her the fancy clothes. Like, she now has all the money and he has to sort of do what she wants to do. He's wearing her pearl necklace. <laughs> yes, he is. Very Harry Styles. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That would have been enough. I think that Jane gets rewarded for her abstaining regardless of her desire. I do not see this as Jane getting punished for her desire in any way. I think that the book is trying to make the argument that Rochester is getting punished and Jane isn't. And in fact, the the problematic thing is that I think that the book is arguing Jane just keeps winning. Jane's now the richer one. And not only that, like she even has physical power over him. Like he needs her. And like that is its own fetishizing that is complicated and problematic. And of course, people love to be needed, but this is a different thing. You know, that quote that you pointed us to of I love you better now. Maybe that is in part her just taking care of him and emotionally by being like, no, I like there's nothing that could happen to you that would make me love you less. And everything that happens to you makes me love you more. But she certainly is like, I love that you're going to physically need to lean on me. And like, you know, they've always been interested in some weird power dynamic stuff. So I want to give it to them and, you know, and leave room for how complicated that is. I mean, we can parse this and it's worth parsing. But I also don't want it to overshadow how effectively Bronte communicates their love for each other and how beautifully Jane communicates to her reader what it is like to love in this deeply seen, deeply equal way, where we've just seen her struggle so hard for a year of never getting to be herself and always trying to fit, I mean, more than a year, right? From from the beginning of her childhood to never belong anywhere. And then we get this sense of belonging when she's with him and it moves me to no end. I know. I love it. I love it. I'm such a sap, but it's so beautiful, especially after having just read like The Cold Heart of Sinjin. To like now hear her heart articulate these things is so satisfying. And it's amazing. I mean, we feel it in the dialogue. We feel it in the descriptions. It's like there's blood running through her veins again. It's like her pale cheeks are finally flushed, even though they're never described that way, right? We just, <laughs> we feel her so much. And honestly, I don't think it's cliche at all the way that Bronte writes this. I think it is so specific. It's so closely observed. It's so well realized that I think it's just amazing. And I, I would love to read a few lines that we can just pick apart a little bit because there are these few lines that to me just represent what true, deep, companionate love means more than maybe almost anything else I've read in literature, which since I can be so cranky about this book, you know, this is a real thing for me. <laughs> she says... There was no harassing restraint, no repressing of glee and vivacity with him. For with him, I was at perfect ease because I knew I suited him. All I said or did seemed to either console or revive him. 
delightful consciousness. It brought to life and light my whole nature. In his presence, I thoroughly lived, and he lived in mine. I love it so much. <laughs> I know. And I, I'm so glad you picked those words because we talked last week about the frustrations and beauty of the supernatural hearing voices from across hundreds of miles, which we find out in this chapter is like literally true. And right, like that kind of idea of romance is much less interesting to me than in the, he found the most boring things I said interesting. I could read the phone book to him and he would just like delight in hearing my voice and that we are just gifts to one another. That idea of romance is so well articulated. And I don't know, it's also like not very different from what she had with Diana and Mary, which I also love, right? There's, it's like Diana and Mary plus cuddling. Diana and Mary like plus like a sexual frisson. And like, that's it. She described the delight in studying with them and talking about books with them in similar language. And I think that's part of what I what I adore about it. And I, and I just want this for her. This is a man who has like a bottomless desire to be in her company. And this is a girl who's been alone so much. And it goes back to that first thing you said that he said that was so hot of what do you think? He cares about everything she thinks. It's amazing. And it makes the things that I get really wincy about, really cringy about, like the number of times that she calls him master before she's even with him, just in her head, calling him master. Like all of it makes me feel so skeezed out until I encounter these lines. And then it really feels like, you know what, honey, if that's what does it for you, great. If this is you being your unrepressed self and feeling so embodied and so seen and just easing into what love feels like, sublimate whatever you want. But that that is just a okay with me. (laughs) And are you at all moved by a deep rooting of her? She is like on his lap minute one. And she's like, should I not have been? Maybe not. But who cares? We were happier when we were on top of each other. And she, right, like she's just all over him. She's like mocking him and like combing him and snuggled up on him and taking his watch and giving him water. And there's just like such a corporal interaction between the two of them that as I was reading, I was like, see, Lauren, she's not a prude. She doesn't even know if he wants to marry her yet. And she's like, my favorite part is when she's like, if you don't want me to move in with you, I'll build a house that like the door touches the wall to this. Like I'm rich and that is where I will choose to live. And of course, that to me is like the moment of prudishness in the chapter that I totally roll my eyes at is like, really? shut up, Jane, get on his lap. You know what's going on here. Don't talk about being his neighbor and his nurse. But I have I to say, she's even scared. there, I know, I was going to say even there, yeah. you know, Bronte is still letting us know like, oh, maybe she overstepped. Maybe she misread this. Like she conjures that anxiety so effectively. But yeah. I mean, you know, I also think that 
their flirting was was the catnip in the beginning. And man, do we get it here, right? I mean, that moment where she says, I see I have the means of fretting him out of his melancholy for some time to come. You know, this this notion that she's just going to like bewitch him and vex him with nothing but repartee and wit and almost this sort of sexual torture. It's It's delicious. And it's also interesting because, you know, you read that line before about how the innkeeper observed, I think, accurately and damningly that that when, you know, older men fall in love with these barely legal (laughs) domestics, yeah, you know, they, they get bewitched. And I think that we do see that over and over and over. And that can be my rant for a different day. Lord knows we've already heard it on this podcast before. But it really is in these scenes that it feels like, yes, she does bewitch him, but it isn't his age. It's their verbal sparring. It's their excitement about each other. And yeah, do I wish she wasn't his fairy? And do I wish he wasn't her master and all of those other play acting moments? Sure. But I definitely get to the point in this chapter, which is like, honey, whatever gets you through the night, I am a okay with it. Well, he's also her eagle and she's his starling. So, you know, there's all sorts of weird pet names, no pun intended, throughout this. And I'm like, (laughs) not how I would flirt, but good for you. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day Sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So Lauren, power, our darling Bertha, she claimed her power. She burnt down the whole fucking house and opted out of this life, right? It was not spending another moment locked in this attic. You know what I think is amazing is it's not just that she burned down the house in the present tense. It's also, it's this house 
that was built on empire, that was built on the slave trade, that was built on sugar, that was built on all of this historic wrongdoing that leads her here. Every stick of furniture, every, you know, the ramparts, you know, (laughs) there are ramparts that burnt, right? But seriously, I, I think that all of these objects inside the house and the house itself are so both literally and figuratively representative of all that is wrong with England in these ways. And she is the one who had the power to burn it down. And I just think that's exquisite. I do too. I freaking love it. So can we analyze though exactly what it is that Bertha does? Because I think that you're a hundred percent right, right? She is just like lighting patriarchy on fire here. But the description that the innkeeper gives, I think, is so telling. It says that Bertha set a first fire to the hangings of the room next to her own. And then she got down to the lower story and made her way to the chamber that had been the governess's. She was like she knew somehow how matters had gone on and had a spite at her. And she kindled the bed there. But there was nobody sleeping in it. Fortunately, the governess had run away two months before. Now, we know that the innkeeper is wrong on the details, right? Bertha definitely knew what was going on. She went down and ripped up Jane's veil. Not only that, Jane was brought up to her chambers in her wedding gown. So, like, it's not maybe Bertha knew. It's like she knew. And it's also not lucky that Jane wasn't there. We know that Bertha is cognizant of whether or not Jane is on her bed. Like Bertha takes a candle and goes right up to Jane's face and blows out a candle in Jane's face, acknowledging Jane. So clearly Bertha knew that Jane wasn't there. So this was not an attempt at murdering Jane, which is how the innkeeper is reading the situation. I'm wondering what you make of what Bertha does before the whole house is engulfed in flames and she jumps to her death. So first she lights the tapestries on fire and it's the tapestries that were hiding her, right? Like Jane, when she was there with Mason bleeding out, didn't even know that Bertha was behind them. They were the bookcase that swivels. They were, you know, the thing that obscured her and hid her from the world. They also, to me, feel like, you know, I'm picturing the tapestries and the cloisters, like they also feel like they're representative of this sort of old Anglican style. And then she marches right down to Jane's room and lights the bed on fire, knowing that Jane isn't there. So let's talk about this, because if she knows that Jane isn't there, why does she light the bed on fire? I have one thought. I don't know how good this thought is, but I'm going to throw it out there, which is that Whatever was left of Jane, which meant everything to Rochester, was probably that bed. I imagine that he probably would pace in that room, lie on that bed, sit on that bed, find some way of communing with all that was left, you know, which was the pearl necklace that Jane left behind, the elements of the bridal trousseau, and the bed in that room. And I think that we could read this as Bertha trying to symbolically burn Jane down, but I actually think it was Rochester that she was trying to punish. I think that she was trying to eliminate his last shred of happiness, his last way of possibly communing with what he lost. I don't know. What do you think? 
Yeah, I love that reading. I mean, the other thing that I can think of is just like it was supposed to be her room. Mrs. Fairfax says at the beginning of Jane's Day at Thornfield, I gave you one of the family rooms because they are more comfortable. And we also know it's very close to Rochester's room. She, you know, Jane hears Rochester's bed being lit on fire and right like the rooms are close to each other, which leads me to suspect that maybe this would have been Bertha's room. His husband and wife did not share a room. And so it's like screw you. This was supposed to be mine, right? Like, let's burn down the barriers. Let's burn down the thing that was supposed to be mine. Let's burn it all down. I think like whatever it is, the innkeeper is totally wrong that it's like Bertha knew and good thing Jane happened to not be there because Bertha was clearly trying to murder her even though she wasn't in the bed. And I'm interested in this unreliable narrator reaching for this thing that we harp on about women, which is the sort of catfight, the jealousy between other women. And I do wonder if there's some aspect in the mistelling there, which is telling itself about how we pit women against each other and how that's sort of been so much something that Jane has been unwilling to participate in in this book. I mean, obviously, she didn't go and save Bertha. She, you know, has spoken horribly about Bertha's mental state, etc. But she never blamed the wife. And this notion of the mistress and the wife despising each other and that being where the real friction is instead of laying fault on the husband Bronte and Jane don't fall for that trap. And so I wonder how much this is just the way gossip works, is the way Mm -hmm. that people tell stories is about the catfight. Yes, I think that that's exactly right. And the other thing that we know that he says, right, I mean, he's big on commentary, this innkeeper. And I think that some of his commentary is really interesting. And some of it is like, quite crude when, you know, Jane is like, oh my God, did Bertha die? And he was like, yeah, she's dead. Dead as the stones on which her brain was bashed. I'm like, (laughs) okay, that's gruesome, sir. And he definitely is like enjoying telling this story. And I can totally see him as enjoying this like cat fight aspect of it. I mean, talk about power, right? Like, I think that There's often this weird seizing of power after a tragedy where people like to claim that they were closer to the thing than they were and that they were closer to the person who died than they were, right? There's a grotesqueness within all of us that like sort of loves that. And he has the news, right? He used to work in the house and he works the local inn and he was there and saw the brains bashed on the cobblestone himself and... And this is a moment where he gets to feel the center of attention and as though he has this power. You know, it, and it certainly has made me think while I've been reading about this being another one of these unnamed characters who has direct speech in the novel, who, you know, this is a story that Bronte could have told in any number of ways. And the fact that not only is it told in some form of exposition, It's not even told by a character who we know, right? It's not Mrs. Fairfax telling us this. It's not, you know, a letter from Sophie that Jane has to translate. It's a totally unnamed resident of this town, this innkeeper. And so it does feel like that choice has meaning behind it, that Bronte does want to tell us something about the way people talk. 
Yeah, and the way people are gossiping about this story. And I think you're right, the way that the town is calling Bertha not only crazy, but like putting all of this meaning behind what she is doing that isn't there based on too little information. And that they're telling the story of, you know, and Rochester not only was heroic, but settled an annuity on Mrs. Fairfax. And Grace Poole drank too much, but it wasn't her fault, right? Like he's going out of his way to give generous readings to every single person except Bertha, who was this vindictive, crazy woman who lit the bed on fire of this poor girl who had left two months prior. Who was, you know, this bewitching person who undid good Edward Fairfax Rochester, who took him from the man the innkeeper knew and turned him into this absolutely brooding, violent presence. It's incredible how much power is bestowed on these women by someone who seems to be trying to disempower them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Lauren, I married him. I can't believe we're here. I can't believe we are on the precipice of Reader I Married Him, which means that we have found our way to the conclusion of this book, Vanessa. I got to say, it's only a few pages, but boy, does it give me a lot of feelings. And a lot to talk about. So often when I edit people, I often just chop off their last paragraph and say, people always write beyond where the ending is supposed to be. (laughs) Just end it here. And man, do I want to do that with this book. So we wanted to talk a bit more about disability, both Rochester's and as we sidle up to the conclusion of Jane Eyre about how it traces back throughout the book. And it would be hard, perhaps impossible, to find a better person to call than Martha Stoddard Holmes, who's a professor at California State University at San Marcos and who has published extensively on Victorian representations of disability in literature, notably her book, Fictions of Affliction, Physical Disability in Victorian Culture. So let's give her a ring, shall we? Hi, Martha. Hi, Lauren. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure and honor. So I am really curious about your read of Rochester's injuries. So one of the things that's probably important to get out on the table right away is that there's a longstanding feminist argument that this is an important way of Bronte putting Jane and Rochester on a level playing field, making them equals, giving them this sense of parallel power by bringing him down. And it also is set up as a punishment from many people's perspectives. I also think that we might want to think about the fact that that assumption that this is something that would bring him low enough to be on a par with her is based on an idea that disablement is bringing one down in one's social position in terms of one's sexual agency, in terms of 
power on various levels. And I think it's an assumption that we need to think very critically about, especially since disability is this identity that we are all going to inhabit if we don't already, if we live long enough. I am curious about stretching back into who Rochester is when we first meet him, how you think his injuries play if we look back through the whole romantic plotline of the book. So the other thing to think about in terms of his really distinctive and obvious and extreme disablement and maiming, if you want to call it that, at the end, is that it tracks back to their first encounter. And she's walking on her own at Liberty outside of Thornfield. And she encounters him. He's, his horse is frightened. He falls off of it and she has to help him. So their first encounter, their first intimacy is in the context of temporary disablement. So I think it sets the scene for disability and illness as being intimate scenes and actually kind of sexy scenes if we look at the history of Victorian literature. So sick rooms and scenes of injury are places in which normal social protocols for unmarried people change. And so there's lots of possibility there. So in a sense, that first scene with the horse is setting up where they're going to come back together at the end, I think. I love that you made that connection because I had not thought about that at all. Though I certainly have been feeling the erotic nature and the chemistry between them in this chapter. You know, and I had read a bit of criticism sort of saying as much as it's frustrating that Bronte is using his injuries as a plot device, it is eroticizing him in his current circumstances. And I was just wondering if despite this sort of tricky feminist bringing him down a notch problematic element of this, if there is not in spite of that, but sort of alongside that differently from that, an erotics that is actually powerful and unusual, or is what you're telling us that this was kind of commonplace to allow that to be a place where sexual transgression could happen. Yeah. And I, I like the erotic angle, frankly, especially because it's really, I think it's really important to sort of disrupt our existing notions of disablement as this thing that removes people as sexual agents and um, asexualizes them. There's certainly a long history of representations that present that, but there are also some counter-representations. And I think one of the things that's important about that is that it also makes us as 21st century readers think differently about the notion of dependency and care as being things that are not necessarily about agency and they're not about sexuality. And I think these stories that, that have scenes of care that are often very intimate because of just sort of the, the physicality of care and the closeness of care, the, the intimate acts that are part of caring for another person's body and mind, these are not seen with the same anxiety that I think we might approach them with. And so the idea of having to be taken care of may be really scary for a lot of people. But I think for the Victorians who had many less, many fewer ways of mediating between scenes of care. People didn't necessarily get sent away to hospitals to get taken care of. 
um, when they were ill, when they were dying, people would die at home, be cared for at home. Dependency was much more a fact of life and it was less scary. So the fiction of independence wasn't so so dominant. It wasn't so associated with being a person of value and and a person who had sexual agency either. So it's interesting. I feel like you are conjuring Helen's deathbed scene somewhat and and the experience that Jane has getting into bed with Helen, which is a scene that we've discussed for its erotic power, potentially. I'm so curious what you think about that. Oh, definitely. And so obviously that is this formative relationship that she has. And my students are always interested in the ways in which that relationship is sort of gone. It was like we get vague reminders of how Helen is sort of with Jane still in some sense. But that really powerful scene just disappears. But I guess you could say, in a way, it is part of what Jane learns that she ultimately brings back to finally resolving her relationship with Rochester. And so this is this really important place where Jane learns about love and unconditional love and also care in the context of that sickbed. And so I think it's very important. You're right. So when you encounter bias, which I'm sure you do all the time (laughs) in most works, I'm really curious if you feel like it's incumbent upon us to be generous to authors, to forgive what is or is not within an author's direct experience while also reading critically, or if there's actually some, some thorny, unforgivable material that thinking about a historic era simply doesn't doesn't just give a pass to. And I I wonder especially how you navigate that with books that you love. So my position on these difficult books and the the issue of messages that Bronte creates that are infuriating at times seem unforgivable and are really seem objectionable is that anything that makes us have passionate discussions about these issues that are truly central to our existence as humans about equity and justice and bias and compassion, like all these things that we feel compelled to discuss as a result of reading a book that has infuriating things in it are really crucial. So it's important that we have those conversations. This is a book that spurs them on, partly because we love things about it. And so then how do we deal with the fact that we love certain things about this book and other things infuriate us? Well, this is a really great example of a book that can be part of an undisciplining of a look at 19th century literature. So we look at this book in context of other perspectives on the story that is being told. I think Bronte offers us multiple perspectives to a certain extent. We might wish and just wish she could make them a little bit clearer and wish that she might not forget some of the hints of trouble that could be much more deeply explored. You know, what is going on in Jamaica? You no, know, let's look at the West Indies in more depth. Let's look at that world that is so close to England in so many ways and not erase it by the end of the novel. But others can provide that awareness that this book may not. And so 
As I think we have to keep reading books that make us have these arguments. Well, Martha, I so appreciate this conversation and I so envy your students and I hope that we'll have an opportunity <laughs> to connect again. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to On Air. We're hoping to read Pride and Prejudice next, but we need your help to do it. So if you can, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hot and bothered rom pod. If you love the show, please leave us a review wherever you are listening to my beautiful voice right now. We are Not Sorry Production. Our executive producer is the wonderful and marvelous Ariana Nettleman. Our associate producer is Molly Baxter, and we are distributed by ACAST. This week, we want to thank Roxanne Eberly and Martha Stoddard Holmes for talking to us, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of our patrons. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com.